And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us a sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called, to, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their, one, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Father, we need you this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit open our eyes, soften our hearts to this text. I pray, Lord, that you will use me now just as your servant, as your vessel, to proclaim your truth. We pray, Lord, most importantly now, that we will see you through this text, that we will see you as the greatest Messiah, the greatest servant. Humble our hearts, especially as we go through a familiar text. Be with us now, O oh Lord. We give you all the glory, all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in, in John Bunyan's famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress, which I actually did mention last week in the call to worship, some of you... Some of you are here. There's about 10 people who are here. It was because of the time change and everything else. I totally understand. Um, so I get to do it again. Um, but there's a different illustration here. Um, if you don't know what Pilgrim, or the book Pilgrim's Progress, it's, it, it's a book written by John Bunyan. And jo John Bunyan's main character, uh, his name is Christian. And Christian goes on this long journey. It's called, uh, really, a salvation story. And it begins with the city of destruction, which we like to call the world. And it ends in glory in the celestial city, which some like to call heaven or life with Christ. And so there's different stages throughout this book. And this book is filled with allegories, like double meanings everywhere. And there's a stage in Christian's journey where he leaves what we call the palace beautiful. And really, the palace beautiful is the picture of the church. And it's one of the highest points 
in Christian's life. But the next stage, he has to go down. He's on the high mountain, but he has to go down to what Bunyan refers to as the Valley of Humiliation. And several friends join him as he makes his way down. But when they reach the bottom, he's left all alone. And it's during this time that he faces some of the darkest of people and hardest encounters, which are all very humbling to Christian. But one thing is very clear. As this story unfolds, the valley of humiliation represents a humbling experience that Christian goes through. That Christian goes through. And that as us as Christians, we go through as well. I mean, God brings into people's lives this valley of humiliation to destroy the sin of pride and to, and to help those develop a godly humility. And today, this is where our text brings us, so to speak. The disciples learn a lesson as Jesus takes them into the valley of humiliation. And I think of all, a lot of us need to go there in order to understand really our own place in the kingdom. Certainly, the disciples needed this lesson as much as we do. Now, before we jump right into our text, I want us to sort of take a step back for a moment. Sometimes I, I think we're tempted to look over the past couple sections that, uh, that we've been going through, these, these past couple, um, I would say, just topics as isolated stories in the Gospels. And so, um, really, I want us to look, just, just think through Mark as a whole, and some of, his, some of you have been here uh, through our whole time in Mark, and some of you haven't, so it's good just to, to get into the context here. If you recall, chapters 1 through 8 in Mark, um, it's really about who Jesus is. And the question is, is Jesus really the Messiah? And so Mark, the author, is painting this picture of who Jesus really is. And then from chapter 11 through, through the end of the book of Mark, it reveals how he becomes the messianic king. So again, chapters 1 through 8 is who Jesus is, and chapters 11 all the way to the end is how Jesus becomes this king. But we have this middle section uh, right here in chapter 8 through chapter 10. And, and Jesus begins teaching his disciples. And if you guys remember, it started out with the healing of a blind man, and then evidently, next week, it ends with the healing of another blind man. So keep that in mind. Something inter interesting where it starts with a blind man and ends with a blind man in the teaching section. And so what Jesus is doing in this middle section is he's teaching his disciples about following him. He's really saying, this is who I am to his disciples, and this is how I'm going to show you who I am. I mean, it begins with the cost of following him. Remember, deny yourself, pick up your cross. And then we come to, to chapter 10. And leading up to our passage, we have three different, what I like to call teaching moments in the lives of the disciples. Teaching moments in the lives of the disciples. And he does it again in our passage, which I just read. Now, take note here. In chapter 10, verse 10, it says, In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So Jesus has these personal teaching moments in chapter 10. And after his encounter with the, with the uh, rich young ruler, Jesus again has another teaching moment. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. Jesus looked around and, it, and he said to his disciples, 
So he's always personally addressing the disciples. And so as I was studying this text, the whole idea of following Jesus begins to come to light. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, yes, you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross, but it's also going to look like all these various topics. Here's what I mean. Look at the topic of um, divorce, which Rod preached on a couple weeks ago. And really, I like to say marriage, because marriage is the opposite of divorce, obviously. But following Jesus, now take a step back, and this is a teaching moment. He's teaching his disciples. But really, following Jesus will require a commitment where only death will separate the disciples and Jesus. And of course, it's only temporarily. And Jesus even says, look at chapter 10, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to look like a marriage. And then he goes on. The next topic is what? The little children. Following Jesus will cause you to be dependent on him like a child. And if you remember Rod's list, he had many lists that, that Sunday. And as children, we are hopeless. We are powerless. There is no standing before him. And so following him will require the disciples to cling and trust Jesus for dear life. And then we have the topic of the rich, the rich young man. We're really following Jesus will cause you to give up everything for the sake of your temporary joy, earthly treasures, in exchange for eternal joy in Jesus Christ. And so, again, isolated, it's hard to, to get this picture, but if you take a step back and you look at all of chapter 10, Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is how it's going to look like if you follow me. And then we get to really our scene, which is another teaching moment where it talks about true greatness. And true greatness is being a servant in the kingdom. And therefore, following Jesus will require that his disciples and really the church go through the valley of humiliation in order for true greatness to happen in the kingdom. And so here's my, here's my aim. Here's my proposition. Jesus concludes his radical teachings by instructing his disciples that true greatness is being a servant in the kingdom. Let me say that again. Jesus concludes his radical teachings by instructing his disciples that true greatness is being a servant in the kingdom. And so as we go through the, the, the text this morning, I want us to ask I want us to ask ourselves some of these questions. Because it's such a familiar text, some diagnostic questions. The first one is, do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? For the disciples, this is the third time that Jesus talks about the passion, which we're about to go through, right? So do you know the gospel? And if so, will you follow and serve him? Will you follow and serve him. But ultimately, as we go through our passage, my question for all of us today, I want you to think about this. What will the gospel make of you? What will the gospel make of you? So let's jump into our first point this morning, which I call the last prediction of Jesus. The last prediction of Jesus. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. 
And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Of course, we find here, obviously, is the road to Jerusalem. And so before we move any further, take note, take note in this verse, that as the lamb is going to Jerusalem, the great shepherd is leading the way. As the lamb is going to Jerusalem, the great shepherd is leading the way. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Here's why I want us to notice this as our scene unfolds. Jesus was not dragged into Jerusalem. He was not on hands and knees pleading with the crowd or the disciples to spare his life. In other words, he wasn't kicking and screaming. Jesus willingly set his face toward Jerusalem, ready to suffer and die. Additionally, Mark adds that they were amazed and afraid. Question is, why is that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Never before have the disciples seen anyone willfully submit themselves to death, let alone a king, this man who calls himself the Messiah. I mean, Jesus is literally walking toward his death. In fact, he's leading the way. Now remember, all of this is pretty radical to the disciples. I mean, it was radical when Jesus said, you know, pick up your cross, deny yourself and pick up your cross. That's radical teaching. And so they have this radical example right in front of them. Jesus knew the cost in sacrificing his life, even if others still didn't understand. And now we see him speak of his own, really his death mission to his disciples and how it's all going to conclude in Jerusalem. And so the next part of our, our verse here is what I call the mission in Jerusalem, the mission in Jerusalem. And what I mean by this, this is the passion account. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was, what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three, three days, he will rise. Jesus' third and final prediction of his suffering and death provides the most detailed account of the passion story to his disciples. Now remember, he said this two times before, but they still didn't connect the dots. The first two predictions, they're found in Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 31, and Mark chapter 9, starting with verse 30. And look at their reactions. Let me read it for you. Chapter 8, verse 32, this is Jesus told the first passion account, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Remember, he was saying, look, no, 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 that's not going to happen to you. You're the king. You're supposed to rule here. And Jesus said, no, I am the king. I'm the king that's going to die. Look at Mark 9.32, the second passion account. Look at the reaction. This is the disciples. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They still didn't get it. Nevertheless, you wonder why a third time. Well, we could safely assume that Jesus felt it was necessary to repeat himself because up until now, things weren't clicking. Again, all teaching moments from Jesus. The disciples were amazed, they were afraid, and probably confused all at the same time. All these radical teachings from Jesus give us this picture of discipleship. But it's not just discipleship, it's radical discipleship. The call to follow him will require great sacrifice. But... 
a radical sacrifice must happen first. And so Jesus, look at the passion account. Jesus points to eight specific aspects of his passion account. And the disciples have already heard some of it, but some, some are new. First, when he goes to Jerusalem, right, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the religious leaders. Okay, that's already been said. And then we have, number two, the religious leaders will condemn Jesus to death and deliver him to the, the Gentiles. Wait a minute. Think about this. The Jews will condemn him, but the Gentiles, the Romans, will kill him. That was new. And then he says this. The Gentiles will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. They will kill Jesus. He's getting more specific now. I mean, this was the plan all along for the religious leaders to kill Jesus. And don't forget, he also said he was going to, the resurrection. But this was the plan all along with the religious leaders to kill Jesus. If you remember back in chapter 3, if you were with us, Jesus and his crew, they were plucking grains out in the field on Sunday or the Sabbath. Then Jesus shows that he's the Lord over the Sabbath, right? He heals the man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees get all upset. And here's what happens. Chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. And so that was the Pharisees' plan. But you know what else? Listen, church, this was God's plan all along. And the Old Testament is full of all these references to the Messianic King. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of of the Lord to crush him. And he has put to grief. He has put him to the grief. Literally, that word crush is to break or beat into pieces. And that's what makes this whole thing radical. Friends, our Savior has his face set toward Jerusalem. He knows every detail that will happen to him by virtue of the Old Testament. And so he's teaching and preparing his disciples what radical service ultimately will look like, which is through his death. The Pharisees' plan was to kill him, but it was also God's plan. Therefore, don't overlook what's happening here with the disciples. Oftentimes, we will miss the gospel, just like the disciples did. But but also, oftentimes, we will misunderstand God's plan. Let me say that again. Oftentimes, we will miss the gospel, and oftentimes, we will misunderstand God's plan. Both are important in order to follow God. Jesus. We cannot live without the gospel, for it is a gospel that enables us to live. But we cannot seek to understand God's plan for our lives, for it is a gospel that opens our eyes to see God's plan to serve and live for him. In the same way, God orchestrates every detail in our lives, just like he did with Jesus's life. I mean, there are, oh, there are no oops moments with God. Something happens in your life. He doesn't say, look, my bad. I mean, from eternity past, from our very first breath to our last heartbeat here on earth, into eternity with him, that's not by accident. God has a plan. And ultimately, God's plan was to send Jesus and serve us by way of the cross. Therefore, he sends us to follow and serve Jesus 
while considering the cost of denying ourselves and picking up our cross. Let me submit to you this morning that if you don't know him and are questioning life's plans, look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. Look at our text. Look at him. He was condemned. He was delivered. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was crushed into pieces for our sins, for your sins. He was raised from the dead so that you can enjoy life with him forever. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, you will be saved. So let me ask you, do you believe in this gospel? We see that even the disciples had a firsthand account. I mean, they had Jesus right in front of their faces telling them the gospel for the third time. But they still didn't get the entire picture. Is that you this morning? Let's keep on moving here. The next point I find here is the selfish predicament of James and John. The selfish predicament of James and John. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, can you imagine you just got done talking about your impending death and you hear such a request? I mean, it's interesting to note that in Matthew's account in chapter 20, it has James and John's mother approaching Jesus with these very requests. So I like what Mark does here in this account. I mean, he understands it's the actual disciples that are asking the question. But really, in Matthew's account, they had their mom do it for them. For reasons we don't know, I mean, James and John really needed to man up at this you know, moment in time. But everything about this situation reveals the selfishness in man's heart. In light of Jesus humbling himself, man comes and turns it completely about himself. That's pride. It's like them saying, you're going to be king? Okay, Jesus, but I want you to do something for us. It's a selfish and prideful act on James and John's part. Yet, Jesus asks such a penetrating question in response. Look, pay attention to verse 36. And he said to them, this is Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? This is a question that should all make us pause just for a moment. What do you want me to do for you? You see, in our, own, in our most unselfish moments, we want Jesus to use us to make his name known, whatever the cost. But in our most selfish moments, we want to use Jesus to make ourselves known, whatever the cost. What is it you want Jesus to do for you? Is it selfish or is it unselfish? Let us look at the actual request of James and John more closely. It's what I call the request to be served in the kingdom. The request to be served in the kingdom. Verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. This is such an odd request. And so you wonder why they make such a ridiculous command. Some say that James and John had selective hearing. Jesus does call them children just a couple verses ago, if you remember. Right? They got the glory part right, but everything else they seem to overlook. 
The fact is, we don't have all the details as to why they made this request. However, there are some things that lead up to this interaction with Jesus. There's two things I want us to point out, and this is why context is so valuable. Look at the beginning of chapter 9, and you'll remember the transfiguration moment. Jesus took with him three disciples. Mark chapter 9, verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and who? James and John, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and Jesus was transfigured before them. So if you recall, Jesus was transformed before them, and he appeared to be the brightest white you'll ever see. And then Elijah and Moses suddenly appeared as they started chatting with Jesus, and thereafter God speaks, okay? All very dramatic stuff, and Peter, James, and John were all there. And so what the, what the disciples briefly saw was Jesus' moment in glorification. And so naturally, James and John requested that they, what? Sit in his glory. Additionally, Jesus uses kingdom language in Matthew's account. And this is Matthew's account. It's found in chapter 19 before James and John's request. Let me read it for you. Chapter 19, verse 28 in Matthew. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, that's gets kingdom language, you, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So here's why I believe the disciples still had an earthly kingdom in mind. James and John's request revealed what they thought they understood, but did not fully grasp yet. They wanted the best seats in the kingdom. And so what following Jesus meant for them was power and authority. I mean, it's how the world thinks, right? The world is always seeking power and and authority. People work up their way the corporate ladder for power and authority. Now, it's not bad to work hard or to work your way up in life. We encourage it. But if your goal is only power and authority, greatness and status in life, if your goal is only if you want to make your name known, then you have it all wrong. James and John were seeking greatness from an earthly king. But Jesus turns their thinking upside down. Essentially, he's saying, look, if you're going to be in my kingdom in the highest position, you're not going to stay up here. You're going to be down here. Because you're, you're going to do it by serving. You're going to do it by serving. And so Jesus corrects them in the following verses. Look at verse 38. It's what I call the, the call to be a sacrifice for the kingdom. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Now, here's that earthly kingdom mentality and pure selfish thinking that still plagued James and John. One writer put it this way, perhaps they've forgotten that the cross precedes the crown. It's the cross before the crown. Not an earthly crown, but a heavenly one. And the disciples have to go through the valley of humiliation before they ever get to the top. And he gives us these images. Jesus gives us these images of what it will take before he receives the heavenly crown. First, we have, look at your text, the cup. This, this cup is a cup of suffering. 
in Jesus referring to this cup, it's not primarily, primarily physical suffering, although he, although he does suffer physically, but it's a spiritual suffering. The Bible talks about this cup. In Jeremiah 25, it says this, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm, swent, that I'm sending among you. And so the same imagery is used in Revelation 14.10. song about Satan. He, will, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So this cup is a metaphor for God's wrath. As one commentary puts it, Jesus was not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. He was a savior about to experience divine wrath. And that divine wrath was from the Father. Not only that, but the image of baptism here is the image of a pool of death. Jesus will suffer by drinking or experiencing God's wrath, but he will also die at the cross, suffering and death. Jesus will drink and submerge himself into death. Therefore, the question that Jesus poses to James and John is this. Will you drink and immerse yourself into death? Before the cup, the crown is a cup. Before the overflow of blessings, there will be an overflow of death. And so Jesus continues. He said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, there will be a time where James and John will drink the cup and be submerged in death. I want you to take note of this. James would be the first of the original disciples to die. His death was quick by the sword. John would be the last disciple to die. His death was slow and painful on the island of Patmos. They both drank the cup and experienced the pool of death. Jesus continues, verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And so as verse 40 adds, Jesus understands that really it's the heavenly Father that gives the places of position. And look at Jesus. He always, he's always humbly submitting himself to the Father's will. I mean, Jesus shows his humility, although fully divine and fully human, by reminding his disciples that he is in submission to the Father and not his own agenda in taking any high place. It's all God. And so the world will sacrifice for prominence. The world will sacrifice for prominence so that they can have power and authority. But listen, church, Jesus sacrifices for service. He releases his power and authority. Verse 41 is a reminder that everyone, all the disciples, were in on it. Not only James and John, right? Look at verse 41. When they heard it, they began to be indignant. They were angry at James and John. But they were talking about this since chapter 9, if you remember. Remember that question, who's greater, who's the greatest? They still didn't get it. They wanted authority. They wanted power here on earth. But Jesus changes their thinking, and it takes us to our last point this morning. 
This is where Jesus tells them that what true greatness is in the kingdom. This is what I call his ultimate plan. So we have the prediction, we have the predicament, and now we have the plan. And this is Jesus' plan for us and his plan for himself. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, I mean, look at the Savior teacher. Here's the teaching moment, okay? So Jesus is so patient. Jesus gathers his disciples with great patience. He calls them over. He says, come here, come here, guys. Let me explain to you what's happening. And the first thing he explains is really a worldly example or the world's example of greatness. Look at verse 42, continuing. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Now remember, Mark is writing to Gentile Christians in Rome. And so Jesus is saying this. You know the Romans, the Gentiles, the ones who are going to kill me? They take great authority. They have. They take the great authority they have and use it to their own advantage. They, they lord it over them, right? They love power. The Romans love power. They have great ambition to rule the world with a heavy hand. Does that sound familiar, friends? They bully people. It sounds like our world, doesn't it? Where people use their position to bully others. And so, I'm not sure about you, but we've seen this in the news the past year. And I don't need to tell you an illustration because this is the world's example. People are in high positions and they're abusing their authority with the low people. It's happening now. It's been happening throughout the centuries. But dear Christian, I want you to hear this warning. Hear this warning from Jesus. Jesus says what? It shall not be so among you. You're not gonna be like those Romans. You're not gonna be like the world. You're not gonna exercise your power and authority over people. And so Jesus gives us really what I call the ultimate example. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must be slave of all. Jesus saying, you wanna be great disciples? Look church, do you want to be great? There are two things you need to do and it doesn't start up here. First, you need to be a servant. You need to be a servant. It's the same word used for deacon. And so we know the qualifications of deacon according to Paul and and Peter. And and so that word deacon or servant, it comes from the word dust. This is very interesting. It refers to dust sort of like all over, you know, dust is sort of all over the place. And so as as servants of the church, you're going to be here, you're going to be there, you're going to be you're going to be going to someone else. You're going to be having someone in your home. You're going to be going to other people's homes. You're going to be welcoming new parents one month. You're going to be helping them, maybe bringing them soup. And then the next month, you're going to be at someone's funeral. I mean, the deacon, the word deacon is literally a waiter. You're going to be serving others. You're going to be spending your life giving people what they need. You're going to be serving your family one morning, and then you're going to be leading worship the same morning. 
You'll be setting up here at 7.30 a.m., and then you'll be going to a meeting at 1 p.m. Servants are all over the place. And that's the picture. That's the dust. And so we're all dust serving the church. We're waiting on people. We're serving people. And so let me ask you, do you think the disciples stayed put after the resurrection? Have you read Acts? This ragtag group of disciples became apostles and they went to the nations serving all the churches, proclaiming his name. True greatness is through service. And so if you're doing that now, thank you. You're being deacons and we're all over the place. Second, it says you must be a slave. You must be a slave. If I were to teach you one Greek word today, you should know, is doulos, slave. And a slave is one totally owned by another and possessing no rights except those given by his, except those given by his or her master. So you must be servant, but you also must be slave. And I'm not gonna give you any examples because we have the greatest example in our next verse. And that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the most beautiful example. And I don't need an illustration to amplify my text. Look at verse 45, which is the key verse in all of Mark. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, true greatness never starts with us. It starts with Jesus Christ. Let me break this down for us. The Son of Man son of man. This refers to Jesus' humanity and humiliation. Now I like to read this version of Philippians 2. We've read it so many times here at church. But look at Philippians 2 verse 6 and 7. This is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. That is humiliation. That is doulos. Taking on the likeness of men. That is humanity. The son of man, that's his humanity, and that is his humiliation. The son of God who had all the power, just like the Romans did in that day, came not to rule, but to serve. Second, we find servant or serve. He was the ultimate servant. He was the ultimate servant. He was everywhere, right? He was preaching, he was healing, he was teaching. Now, if you remember our journey throughout the book of Mark, he was on one side of the Galilee, then he was on to the next side. He was in Capernaum. He, was, he, was, he went to his hometown in Nazareth. I mean, Jesus was deacon of the year three years in a row. He was everywhere. He was dust. Of course, he was the greatest servant, he served his disciples well, and he will always serve us through his life, death, and resurrection. That is our example. But ultimately, he served the Father as a ransom. He served the Father as a ransom. Jesus Christ ultimately served us by giving up his life. Philippians 2, 7. And we had come as a man in his external form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now, ransom is the price paid for the release of a slave. Let me, de- let me define that for you. Ransom is the price paid for the release of a slave. Jesus gave his life as a price paid for the release of a slave. Who did he pay it to? Well, he paid it to God. His death is what satisfied God's righteous anger. And therefore, Jesus redeemed us. And so the question is, redeemed us from what? Well, sin and death. The law of sin and death. We were in bondage to the law of sin and death. Ever since the fall back in Genesis 3, humanity was cursed because of Adam's sin. Romans 5.12, let me read that for you. Just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And because of sin, we all deserve death. We could never make a perfect payment for our sins. So someone had to do it, and that someone is Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The payment was to God. God is the judge who had to be satisfied. He had to be appeased. He had to be propitiated. Therefore, Jesus is the ransom. He's the substitute. He is our propitiation. Sinful humanity could not satisfy God on their own. So God did it through his son. God sent his son, the perfect one, to crush Jesus on our behalf. And in doing so, God declared that the payment was paid in full. That was Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. It was paid in full, and Jesus did it through his life. Now, it was Jesus at the top of the mountain with the Father. He was glorifying the Father with the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. But Jesus left the top of the mountain, and he went down to where? The valley of humiliation, on our behalf. And his disciples deserted him. So Jesus went through the darkness alone. It was in the valley of humiliation where he was mocked, he was spat on, he was flogged and killed. But here's the thing, John 13, 1, and Jesus talking to his disciples, he says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As Jesus walked toward Calvary with a cross on his back, every time he was mocked, Jesus said, I love you. Every time he was spat on, he said, I love you. Every time he was flogged, he said, I love you. In the valley of humiliation, Jesus loved you to the very end. And that is your servant king, the greatest servant of all. That is, he is our ransom. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is our ransom. Now let me conclude here. I want to point out one other thing in our text And that's at the end of verse 45. I'm going to talk about four, many, as Jesus mentions. 
I mean, just briefly here, look at the parallel. Look at the parallel in verse 45 as a whole. We have the Son of Man. That's one man. He died for who? For many. That's the disciples. That's the church. Those whom Jesus foreknew from the very beginning of time. And if you turn, it, it, I'll, I'll read it for you in Revelations 5, 9. When, when John is looking up into heaven, he says this, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. That's the many. Jesus, one man, son of man, died for the many. So my question is for you. Will you be the many that follow him? Will you trust Jesus as Lord and Savior? Following Jesus will cause you to lose any status that you might have in this world, but gain the ultimate status with God because of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if you follow me as you serve and become a slave to all, I will be with you. I will be with you, the church, all the way. Do you see why this is so radical? The disciples assumed they were going to be served, but because they were part of the kingdom. But Jesus says, you have it all wrong. You're going to serve them, just like I served you. And so he's freeing us, church, in order that we may be served. Jesus refers to um, the church as a city on a hill in Matthew. And so you will be serving in your home. You'll be serving others in their homes. You'll be leading Bible studies. You'll be teaching our kids. You'll be serving in missions We will be waiters and doormats. That's not false humility. That's servant and slave. And the world will look at the church thinking they have all the power and authority, but the church will look to Christ who has all the power and authority. And so I want you to look at Jesus, our ransom. And so I have this question once again. What will the gospel make of you this morning? What will the gospel make of you? Look to Jesus, who died for your sins and rose again. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is such a powerful text and a powerful reminder for most of us here that you did what we could not do, that you were the ransom paid to God, that we are imperfect people, that before we came to you, we were in darkness. The Bible says we were dead. But Lord, you woke us up. You opened our eyes to that gospel, to the gospel you shared with your disciples. You hung on that cross, and on that cross, when you said it is finished, you said it was paid in full. And Lord, that is freedom for us that is freedom for us to serve you. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that you have all the power and authority, but as a church now, we acknowledge that you are the greatest servant king. And so we want to imitate that as the church. We want to serve, we want to love others for the sake of your gospel. And sometimes it will hurt in serving others. Sometimes we will be tired, we will be weary, but, Lord, it is worth it We will never look back in life and say, you know what, I regret serving the church. 
but we will look back and say thank you for allowing me to serve the church just as you did through your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, grant us the spirit to press on, to continue on. And we are so thankful for your gospel, which enables us to live. Lord, I lift up to you all these things today, everything we ask in your name, amen.